0: Well, listen, I'm gonna say something right now that I will probably begin saying for the next 10 years, turn to the book of Hosea, all right? It'll be less than that. Hosea is shorter than Acts. Took us four years in Acts, so who knows how long this will be, all right? But Hosea it is. Many of you have asked what we're gonna do And I am excited about this book. And Father, I pray that you'd be our teacher. We welcome you to work. We welcome your voice. We welcome uh, the perspective that this book has, as tough as it is. And we open up our hearts for the message that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are Bible passages that are very difficult to understand and frankly I'm at the point where that doesn't bother me as much as what it used to uh, and the reason is is because I don't always understand my wife but I love her more than any earthly person so understanding everything is not a prerequisite for loving uh, and I'm certainly not advocating that we turn our brain off when it comes to our relationship with God but just that it's it's not the only thing, understanding everything. I mean, I'm okay with God being God and me being finite. How about you? At least when it comes to my, to my understanding. And understanding that God is omniscient and I'm not helps me in the relationship. I have to remind myself of this. And frankly, there are some biblical stories that I understand in terms of I get the symbols of what the words stand for and their meaning, I understand that. I sometimes just don't like what it's saying. There are Bible stories that I simply have a hard time to accept. And this should not surprise anyone. And the reason it shouldn't surprise anyone is this. If I had infinite knowledge like God, and I had a will that was constantly in submission to God, none of this would be a problem. But as human beings, we are finite in our understanding, and we go through seasons of pride and arrogance that get in the way of these stories and injunctions that sometimes just seem unacceptable. The story of the minor prophet Hosea is one of those situations that I think can kind of take us to the brink. It stretches our understanding. It is... Also, helpful to know that God talks about grace in this book. And so that's easy to accept. But God also talks about condemnation of actions. And that's a little hard to swallow for some. Again, this is a prerogative of God because He's God, He is omniscient, He is sovereign, and He has to deal with fools of which we have all been a part. In our natural state, this is us. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Again, our natural state. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's really not much commentary to add to that. I think that's pretty plain. And basically what it tells us is when we draw near to God, it's because of his prompting. It's because because of his work. And we don't bring something to the table that accelerates that. It's his work in our lives. Now, Hosea is not called a minor prophet because of his height, but the brevity of the prophecies in the book compared to, let's say, the works of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Israel, during Hosea's time, had experienced a divided kingdom because of a a host of problems that resulted in their neglect and rejection of God. That didn't just start in his time, but it was experienced in his time. The northern kingdom was Israel, and the southern kingdom was Judah. Now, Hosea seems to be a native of the northern kingdom, but frankly, there's not a whole lot we know about this guy. His ministry, from what we can put together, lasted about 45 years if we tag it along with the kings that he mentions. And this would have taken place... During the years of 700 BC, one writer said this. This is so good, I couldn't pass it up because I think it really encapsulated the context of why this book was written. Following the death of Jeroboam II, the nation was in a state of political anarchy. One of the six kings, of the last six kings of Israel, four were assassinated, and the other two, ascended the throne via assassinations. Morally speaking, Israel was bankrupt. Blatant immoralities were practiced openly and unashamedly. The religious life of the people was idolatrous and degenerate. Hosea was an eyewitness to the inward deterioration, which eventually led to the collapse of the nation in 722 B.C., at which time Samaria, the capital, fell to the Assyrians." Like I said, the book contains clear condemnations of the nation and of individuals, but it also shows the great love that God has toward his people. And frankly, the modern mind has a very difficult time understanding that God does not condone sin, nor does it understand how his heart breaks over sin In his creation. And without this understanding, grace is cheap. But Hosea communicates that it's in great supply from Almighty God. So we're going to get to the hard part in a second, but let's look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri in the Days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Let's talk first about the kings. Jeroboam was mentioned as a king of Israel, though there were several others in this history that Hosea was in. And some feel that they were so wicked that Hosea had a very difficult time even acknowledging them. These were packs of assassins and ambition climbers. Those were their political leaders. Then you had the kings of Judah. And I think the implication by speaking of both kingdoms is that both kingdoms are being addressed. This applies to both. And I'm struck by the first phrase, the word of the Lord. See, during this dark history of Israel, God is addressing his people. During COVID, Me Too, BLM, an election, Is there any word from the Lord? We long to hear God speak in the midst of our needs, frustrations, and problems. You know what? And sometimes he tells us more than we want to know. He not only assures us of his love and grace, but he confronts and admonishes us in areas that need to change. He speaks. He encourages. And sometimes our greatest growth takes place as a result of a traumatic or threatening or challenging experience. And then we get a firm word of the Lord. I happen to think that the greatest Need of the hour is for the word of the Lord to be clear in our minds and hearts and for our wills to be in submission to him. It's ultimately the core problem of every human being. Every relationship that breaks down, you can go back to this. Here's the crux of one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. if you are looking for me to remove the uncomfortableness of this passage, you are going to be sorely disappointed. There is a holy kind of strain that takes place, particularly when our wills are at odds with God and we find him too unreasonable and we wrestle with it. We wrestle with this kind of holy angst until we can rest in His sovereign will. But let us recognize that the Lord has spoken. It was the Lord. It's curious that Hosea tells us nothing of, you know, His feelings, His. Personal reaction to this information. He simply went and he obeyed. It was a pivotal moment in Hosea's life. We don't get an explanation of how he's feeling. I think it's perhaps because the only thing that matters is that his will is in submission to the Heavenly Father. This would be the foundation of his ministry, the foundation of any ministry leader, any pastor, any individual Christian. You're to listen and obey. It's really not complicated. But let me add that the strength of a thousand horses cannot tame the human will. It's only by the power of God that the human heart can be bent and humbled toward the goodness of God's will. I know, because I have a will that constantly needs to be bent. God asked Hosea to take a wife who is immoral and have children by this woman, who are also considered immoral because that's their mother. So they grow up in that influence. All of this because God's people need a living illustration of what it's like for God to be in a relationship with people who rebel and commit idolatry. They want nothing to do with him. If you're looking for the meaning of the metaphors, the harlot is Israel... Hosea is the Lord, the children of the individuals influenced by his whoredom. The land is the expanse of the people who commit great sin. And here's a taste of the seriousness and the severity of their sin from God's perspective. My people inquire of a place. This is Hosea 4. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. I wish Hosea would just lay it out and be straight instead of beating around the bush. And then from Isaiah, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who who was full of justice... Righteous lodged in her, but now murderers. She's known from her past righteousness, but not now. Your your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. One of the things that frustrates us about the political arena, it seems that all they're after is power and a piece of the pie and money. And you have people that are in great need that they forget about. That was Israel. That was Judah. And there's a lot of discussion that takes place among commentaries about this instruction that God gives Hosea to marry a prostitute. Some think he's just imagining it. Some think that uh, Gomer, his, his wife, I have a real problem just with the name of Gomer as my wife, but anyway. Um, by the way, we met Gomer Pyle, you remember that? Years ago. We, we met Gomer in Branson, Jim Neighbors. He was really funny. He was a good guy. Janet goes, uh, you know, I had a crush on you as a girl. And he goes, you're the one. You know, he was, uh, He was funny, he was a good man. But anyway, rabbit trail there. What'd you talk about today? Gomer Pyle. It was weird. All right. But some think that her being a harlot was just in her heart and not in reality. But there's nothing in the text. There's no good reason to think that. We just take the simple meaning of the words. Now, listen, I don't know about you, but you know, I wanted to get a message from heaven to know that Janet was the one for me. I remember getting to a little park and just praying to God, and I won't get into all of it, but it was kind of a confirmation, right? And when God tells you this is who you should marry, you know, that's like a marriage from heaven, right? But when God tells you to marry someone who is a person who you know will continually cheat on you, That doesn't sound very heavenly. And frankly, it's in places like this that biblical Christianity separates from comfortable PC religion. Because God's grace is expressed in the worst of situations, it doesn't always fit in our nice little evangelical boxes. God's love is messy. And people don't always change in our time plan. We don't have control. I mean, how can God's love and grace rise up out of things like adultery or sexual abuse and murder? And maybe the macro lesson here is if God is using a harlot, what can he do? in my situation, my trials, using my hardships. It may seem impossible because of the extent of the hurt and the evil, but the issue is not how dark is your evil, but how big is your God? The book of Hosea is a haunting theme of unbroken love, from a broken heart. And God cannot give up on his bride of Sinai. Sinai was the area where Moses was given the Ten Commandments. He cannot give up on his bride from Sinai in spite of her unfaithfulness. And the book is about the strict orders of the Mosaic Covenant that, by the way, is no longer in force in this day. And the Abrahamic Covenant that we are beneficiaries of today, being in Christ. The Mosaic covenant had a law and blessing agreement. You were to keep the moral, the ceremonial, and the sacrificial laws. You do that, you're good. You don't, there are consequences. You disobey the law, there are consequences. You obey it, you'll be blessed. Very simple. In fact this was part of the covenant it said this see i'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse the blessing if you obey the commandments of the lord your god which i commanded you today and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the lord your god but turn aside from the way that i am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known so there are consequences of sin in the old testament and may i add also in the new testament they are very real God is not okay with sin in the New Testament, but, you know, he was not okay with it in the Old, so somehow God's attitude has changed uh, towards sin? No. God is not okay with sin in either Testament. In the midst of the covenant was an Old Testament system where you would make sacrifices in the temple to stave off God's judgment until the following year. All this was necessary until the perfect Lamb of God in Jesus Christ would take upon himself the curse and the punishment for humankind. And Hebrews ten twelve says, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. The theological truth that's in this, do not stop here. The marriage relationship, Characterized in Hosea's case by infidelity on his wife's part was to portray Israel's unfaithfulness to its covenant with the Lord. Marriage to an unfaithful wife would help Hosea understand God's anguish over his people's spiritual adultery. In fact, God more than once has compared his relationship with his people, Israel, to marriage. Isaiah 62 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So you see this marriage motif trying to describe this relationship that God has with his people. And Hosea's marriage would be a real-life example of what was going on in Israel. Marriage is also a New Testament theme to a larger issue, to a larger theological truth, just like it was in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it is to display God's relationship to us in the gospel. The church is called what? What? the bride of Christ. And the marriage motif describes the relationship between Christ and the church in covenant, which is a part of all marriage, and intimacy. When Paul speaks to a man leaving his father and mother to be one flesh to his wife, he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. Marriage. Church, Christ. The covenant is what binds the husband and wife together in Christ, and it's an earthly picture of how much Christ loves the church in the gospel. In fact, Malachi 3:14 says, "She is your wife." by what? Anybody know it? By covenant. She's your wife by covenant. Getting back to the spiritual truths, when God made his Abrahamic covenant with his people, before the Mosaic covenant, by the way, he promised that Israel would be his people. Galatians 3.15 says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So in other words, there is nothing that can be said or done that will get rid of this covenant of God accepting being in relationship with his people. That's under the Abrahamic covenant. And I might add that from Galatians 3.29, it says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. And so it's like we're also beneficiaries now being in Christ of this covenant that God originally made with Israel under the Abrahamic covenant. We are reaping the benefits. When Paul talks about who is responsible to keep this covenant, he says in Galatians that, you know, there are some covenants, such as the one with the law, the Mosaic covenant, that there are mediators to hold, you know, both parties accountable. So you had this blessing curse thing going on, right? But no mediator was needed with the Abrahamic covenant, because as verse 20 says of Galatians, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. This has unbelievable meaning in how we approach our relationship with God today. When God made the covenant with Abraham, only God, to use the the Bible language, passed through the middle. Why? Because the covenant was unconditional. And the obligation of keeping that covenant only laid with God and not with us. God was responsible to keep the covenant, unlike the Mosaic. God made a covenant to love his people, to keep his promise to his family members. And his covenant. Is a promise to us, so that we can enjoy the safety and security of a relationship with Him. And frankly, even this is too much for religious people, even Christians. They want to put all kinds of you know qualifiers. Oh, now wait a minute! All right, you can't say if they do this sin, they're still a Christian. No, you can't do that. And they they start putting human parameters around this. But God's covenant is sure. But people can't accept this. They, They don't want to love other people or recognize that God loves them unless they abide by certain codes and, you know, don't do the big sins, whatever they are. It's amazing to me that we have Christians today who want to live in the Mosaic law that is not in operation because they're fearful of the love of God expressed originally in Abraham and in the gospel. Back to marriage. At the essence of marriage is a holy covenant between two people and God. Listen, the essence of a marriage is not a traditional ceremony, as good as that is. The essence of marriage is not a sexual relationship, as nice as that is. The essence of marriage is not having romantic feelings or even two people being in love, as necessary as that is. These things are all consequences of something deeper and more foundational. Trying to eliminate God's covenant nature illustrated in his relationship with his people and then to be shown in a marriage... Eliminate that covenant, it leaves marriage like a shadow of the real thing. Marriage is to be a picture of God's gospel love covenant to his people on earth today. And the gospel at its essence is a promise of God to welcome others, to enjoy his covenant promise, to be in his family. And marriage likewise is an invitation to enter into a covenant relationship and then to be an example of this covenant that God has made with his people. Do you realize what that means for our marriages? Well, you want to know what it's like that God has this passionate love, has a fidelity in his love to his people? then look at the way the two Christians operate in a marriage. That is the ultimate reason for a marriage. Not perfect, but devoted. When we think that marriage is ultimately about getting our needs met, I think we kind of resemble like trying to push a vehicle uphill. We're not appreciating or enjoying it's intended use. And so it becomes this, you know, a hassle. Now, I, I'm not saying it's all peaches and cream. Lord knows that's not the case. But try to define love and marriage and commitment outside of the covenant relationship with God, and you are left with today's flimsy valuation of marriage. And people are trying to enjoy Love, the benefits of covenant, while denying the originator of the covenant. And I'm telling you, that leaves you trying to push the thing uphill. What it does, you say, well, does that create extra responsibility? You better believe it does. (laughs) That create extra heaven? You better believe it does, because you will be tempted to pack your bags. You will be tempted to leave. And you got to remember, not only did I just make this promise in front of these 100 or so people at the wedding, but I'm to have this relationship to be a representative of God on earth. And so if it's not that, then I better get my house in order. I better do whatever I can to make sure it resembles that. Now listen, it takes sometimes a soul quenching. It feels sometimes like you are wrestling the angel and your hip is out of joint. You know how many times I have to tell other men and women, it's not always enjoyable, dude. I don't say that to the women, but uh, I say that to the men. You know, even said this recently, even if you're responsible for 5% of the problem, lead with your 5% in humility and acknowledge it. And eat the other 95%. And if you have to do this for six months, won't that be worth it? That your kids will see their mom or dad loving their spouse. You will be together in your family won't that be worth it? Oh, I sure think so. You ever been through times like that? If you haven't, you've only been married about a week. <laughs> but this idea that God loved us and continues to love us in our lovelessness, in our sin, in our stuff. You know What? That's a lot of marriage. You see somebody that's proud and arrogant? Janet, I'm sure, sees that in me a lot. continues to love. We see it in each other. You see it in your spouse. But listen, you got a higher calling. It, marriage is not, I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine proposition. There's a much higher calling. And that often keeps me in the game, and sometimes that's the only thing that's kept us in the game in in certain seasons because we realize it's not about me. You ever think of that? Your marriage is not about you? Jose, I think, has a word for today. The book expands on this unconditional love covenant from God with his people. And it talks about the consequences of the sin. All I want from us is to listen with an open heart and to heed the warnings and to receive its encouragement.